start a new sutta. This is the 21st sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya called the Kakachupama Sutta, the simile of the saw. This is a very well-known sutta because of the simile with which it ends, so it's often quoted. This sutta begins and it originates from the misbehavior of a certain monk named Molia Paguna. He is not a famous monk, but maybe his one claim to fame is that he was the cause for the Buddha to speak this very famous sutta. That he was associating very closely with the bhikkhunis, the Buddhist nuns. Not that he was engaging in any kind of uh, transgressions of offenses, but it seems he was just getting too intimate and too friendly with them in ways which were considered improper for a monk. And so it was giving a bad impression to other people. And then sometimes when other bhikkhus would see him associating so closely with the bhikkhunis, they would uh, reproach him and try to correct him. And if they tried to correct him, then he would just ignore their device their advice. And the relationship between this monk and the nuns was becoming so close that if any bhikkhu would speak some criticism of the nuns in his presence, then he would become angry with his fellow monks. And also the, <laughs> the bhikkhunis were developing a great deal of fondness for this venerable Molia Paguna so that if any bhikkhu, when he was speaking to the bhikkhunis, would say anything critical about Molia Paguna, then the bhikkhunis would become angry and displeased with those bhikkhus and would reply to him angrily. Okay, then word about this came to the Buddha, and the Buddha called the bhikkhu Molia Paguna to his presence and first questioned him to make sure that this um, intimacy was true. This is a standard procedure of the Buddha, in fact the procedure that he's laid down also for the Sangha when conducting its own affairs. If somebody is criticized for improper behavior or a transgression, one doesn't immediately call him up and then start giving him a scolding. Rather, one calls him and one questions him to get confirmation. Are you really engaging in such behavior? And even though the Buddha, with his perfect knowledge, would know that Molia Paguna was misconducting himself, Still, just to adhere to established procedure and to set a precedent for the Sangha, the Buddha questioned him. And so when the Buddha asked him whether he was associating so closely with the bhikkhunis, 
Then he replied, yes, that I am. Then the Buddha gave him the the admonition. He said, it is not proper for you, a clansman who has gone forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness, to associate so closely with the bhikkhunis. And now the Buddha gives Moliapaguna the advice which will form the theme for the entire sutta. This theme is concerned with the development of patience in situations where one is subject to criticism. Generally, our minds without any training, when they're just left to follow their own natural direction, when we are subject to praise, to approval by others, to admiration from others, we become happy and joyful. And when others criticize us or criticize those who are dear to us, then we become impatient, angry, displeased, upset. And so we lose the balance of mind swinging to the extremes of either pride and joy based on self-love or else we fall to the other extreme of dejection and anger. And for a follower of the Buddha, it's most essential to be able to maintain an attitude of patience and equanimity under all circumstances. And one of the most frequent causes for throwing the mind off balance is the way others speak to us. And so now the Buddha, in paragraph six, he begins by giving this advice to Moliapogana, that if anyone speaks dispraise of those bhikkhunis in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life. That is the reason why Moliapogana was becoming so attached and associating so closely to the bhikkhunis he might have been telling himself that this was metta and karuna <laughs> and that he wanted to show friendliness to the bhikkhunis and to maybe help them to teach the Dhamma. And yet the Buddha would understand that this was taking place really maybe because of some germinal form of sensual love. It was not yet, it had not evolved to the point where it led to any major transgressions, but it was just a feeling of affection and friendliness, which to this monk himself must have seemed like compassionate and loving, compassionate loving kindness. 
but often our minds are very, very clever at deceiving ourselves about our underlying emotions. So what would have underlied this is a subtle feeling, the Buddha uses the expression, desires and thoughts based on the household life. That would be some very subtle, elementary stirring of sensual desire. And so then the Buddha gave him the instruction that <laughs> if anyone speaks dispraise of the bhikkhunis in your presence, then you should train in such a way my mind will be unaffected. The actually the Pali word I think is parimetta, which is more expressive than unaffected. It means not turned around, not upset. My mind will be not upset and I shall utter no evil words. I shall abide compassionate for his welfare with a mind of loving kindness without inner hate. And although the Buddha has given this advice to a particular monk under particular circumstances, we can take these words of advice to apply to ourselves under any circumstances. There are, well first, we have a certain self-cherishing, certain self-love. So if others speak critically about ourselves or about our behavior, then we should not respond at once with anger towards the our critic and self-justification and we shouldn't rebuke him with angry words, but instead keep the mind under control, unaffected, not allow it to become upset, and not speak evil or angry words as a reprisal. Instead, we should, if somebody is speaking to us, even without any justifiable grounds if he's speaking to us angrily and harshly. One should abide with a mind of compassion for that abuser, with a mind of loving kindness, free from inner hate. And the Buddha says, that is how you should train. It's a method of training. It's not a quality that we might have perfectly ingrained in us right from the start, but it's rather a method of training the mind. Our instinctive reaction, based on our long accustomed habit, repeated life after life in samsara, because of the root of self-love and self-cherishing, the instinctive reaction is to utter abuse in return or to attempt to justify oneself. And so the way to overcome that is by training the mind in maintaining the qualities of being unaffected. We could say that's equanimity, an aspect of upeka. And then based on that equanimity, 
one doesn't utter evil speech in return. That's an aspect of what is called sangvara, which means restraint. The Buddha says that one should be restrained in bodily action, restrained in speech, restrained in the mind. So the mind being unaffected is restraint of the mind, not uttering angry speech in return is a kind of restraint over the tongue, restraint of speech. And now the mental qualities that enable one to maintain that restraint and to respond positively and properly in the situation are compassion and loving-kindness. Of course, to be able to muster in these sudden, unexpected situations the strength of mind to respond with compassion and loving-kindness, it's very important to have some training, prior training of the mind in the meditation on loving-kindness and compassion. Metta bhavana and karuna bhavana. If one practices in these imaginary situations and meditation where one directs thoughts towards friends, neutral or indifferent people and enemies, one regards them all with the thoughts, radiating the thoughts first May my friends be well, happy, free from all harm and suffering. Then one is generating thoughts of loving kindness and compassion towards one's friends. Then based on that, after one develops some familiarity with that, then one takes a neutral person, some indifferent people, and then one might visualize their faces, and then one will radiate the thoughts, may those indifferent persons be well, happy, peaceful, may they be free from harm and suffering. Then when the mind becomes familiarized with that practice, and you're able to arouse the feelings of metta and karuna towards the neutral people, then one might take somebody that one considers an enemy, even if one doesn't have any bitter rival, or somebody that one is overwhelmed with hatred towards, still there will definitely be, in almost everybody's case, somebody who just seems to get on one's nerves every once in a while. Be somebody whose manner of doing things makes one irritated or somebody who sometimes acts in gruff and rude ways towards oneself. And so then one will take this person, maybe it's best to begin with one person first, if one starts doing three or four at the same time, <laughs> it might become a little too much. But first one starts with one person, and one will think that just as I'm a human being, I want to be well and happy, I want to be free from suffering. So this fellow, even though 
he is always so rude and thoughtless and even cruel towards many other people. But when you really dig deep into his mind, one realizes that all his, the motivations of his conduct are just sort of distorted expressions of some deep underlying wish to be loved by others, to be accepted, to be recognized, admired. And that just as I want to be happy and free from suffering, so what is really the basic driving force of this person's being is that wish to be happy and free from suffering. And just think that by his rude behavior, his cruelty, his hard-heartedness, he's building up so much suffering for himself in the future. Even now, maybe he has very few friends. <coughs> Even maybe his wife, or if it's a woman, her husband, the children, the relations, nobody really likes that person. So you think that person might be really lonely, very isolated, and even though he might be, if he's very aggressive and assertive, he might rise to high positions, but his life is really very empty. And so when one reflects on that way, then one can build up some feeling of loving kindness and compassion towards the person, even though you might not want to invite him to your home, but still one feels some sympathy with him. Then one might start imagining if one builds up some feeling of compassion and sympathy, might place oneself in imaginary situations where one is together with that person, and he's behaving in his rather rough and rude manner. And so one depicts oneself in the situation and one arouses the thoughts of patience, then compassion and kindness towards him in that situation. Okay, so in that way one is cultivating in the mind these tendencies towards patience, loving-kindness, and compassion, so that they become effective and operative when one is in real-life situations. And so then, when one finds oneself in the real situation, where one is together with that offensive person, and he starts abusing you, and if you're working with him, saying, how can you do, do that, you foolish fellow? Immediately, the feeling of love and compassion might not come up. Again, the anger might come up, and you might want to rebuke him and defend yourself. But there'll be some degree of mental strength to withstand the negative situation. You're not completely overwhelmed by it. Then, even though anger, irritation, even rage might come up at first, 
because one is cultivating the mind, then one can quickly, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but one can redirect the mind into that meditative frame. And so just one puts aside the angry thoughts which might be boiling in the mind and one just brings the mind into the situation of regarding that person, may that person be well, happy, free from harm and suffering. And in that way, one gradually, it's like a weight lifter who wants to build, or let's say the young scrawny fellow who wants to build up strong muscles. He practices every day lifting the weights. And gradually, if he looks at the muscle from one day to the next, it doesn't appear to be very much stronger. But if one looks at the muscle from the perspective of the two months of training, three months of training, then it's much stronger. And of course, training the mind is often a slower, more gradual, more difficult process than building up muscles. But still, the principle is the same, that through repeated practice, one gradually develops this inner strength so that one can withstand the very difficult situations. Okay, so now in this passage, this is paragraph number six of the sutta, the Buddha first begins with the actual situation, which is there are other monks speak, or other people speak to sprays of the bhikkhunis, and Molia, the monk Molia, gets angry. So the Buddha starts with that real situation and now gradually he starts constructing imaginary situations in which the degree of, in which the severity of the situation increases step by step. Okay, now he takes the situation. If anyone gives those bhikkhunis a blow with his hand, with a clod, with a stick, or with a knife in your presence, you should abandon any desires and any thoughts based on the household life, and you should train thus. Okay, here we take a very extreme situation. And now here there's a certain misunderstanding which some interpreters have fallen into because of this passage. And they think that by misinterpreting this passage, they think that the Buddha is inculcating in the monks an attitude of complete indifference towards the suffering of others. And that if there is social injustice being done, say by one group of people to another, that one should not do, take any effective action to stop it, but one should just maintain a kind of passive meditative frame of mind, not getting angry, maintaining equanimity, and radiating love and compassion towards the aggressors. 
to interpret the passage in that way would be to to misinterpret it very badly. I think one has to see that the underlying intent of this passage is not, the Buddha is not prescribing a course of action which is applicable to every situation here. And he's certainly not giving or laying down principles of social ethics in this passage. What he is doing is giving instruction in the way to train the mind in these, say, very straining situations. But if the perspective was, if one adopts a different perspective and takes the perspective of what is the proper course of action in such a situation, there's no doubt that the Buddha would enjoin the monk, that if somebody is about to give a blow with the hand to the bhikkhunis, that he should go over and try to convince that aggressive person to desist from that action and try to admonish him to be compassionate and gentle and kind to the bhikkhunis, especially if he's going to pick up a stick or to strike the bhikkhunis with a knife then definitely the Buddha would say that one should try to persuade that aggressor to desist from that action. But the standpoint of the mind should be that of equanimity, restraint, loving-kindness and compassion, even towards the aggressor. Okay, then in the next passage, the Buddha shows what one should do or how one should direct the mind in the situation where somebody speaks dispraise to oneself. Again, in the same way, you should abandon any desires, any thoughts based on the worldly life. That is, because of self-love and the glorified image we hold of ourselves, if somebody criticizes us or abuses us or speaks dispraise of us, then we become angry and react with, with anger. Then if somebody should give you a blow with the hand, with a clod, with a stick or with a knife, again, even though one cherishes one's own life, one should abandon any of these angry and aggressive thoughts, but one should develop the mind, to train the mind to remain unaffected, not getting upset, that one should utter no evil words, and one should abide compassionate for that person with loving kindness, without inner hate. Again, this doesn't mean that if somebody is going to attack us and attempt to kill us, that one should just passively resign oneself to that person without trying to dissuade him. But in certain situations, one should definitely, even if one can, try to escape. But if one is cornered and has no alternative, then 
one should, even if it's a situation of death, one should try radiating thoughts of loving-kindness and compassion towards that person. I remember reading a story about a, there was a very, very courageous and very unusual Italian bhikkhu who was living most of the time in Burma as a monk, I think during the 1940s, 1950s. He might have spent some time in Sri Lanka. His name was Venerable Lokanatha. Very, very powerful and very daring individual. And as a bhikkhu, I believe he had gone to Italy for some time and he wanted to walk back all the ways from Italy to Burma just without any money, just depending upon his alms bowl. And he was traveling through, I believe it was Turkey or one of those eight countries in Asia Minor. And he was attacked by a group of robbers who tried to, who wanted to take his money, his possessions, and he told them that he doesn't have any money, that he's just a homeless, penniless Buddhist monk. Then they said, then if you won't give us anything, we're going to kill you. Then he said to them, if you want to kill me, that's fine. But there's one favor that I ask of you. Will you please grant me that favor? And they said, what is that? He said, since I'm a monk, we're taught that when we die, we should have a calm and composed mind, since that will be beneficial to us. So can you please just give me about five minutes to compose my mind, then I will let you kill me. And they said, well, We'll give you that, but we're not going away. We're going to stand right here and keep watch on you so you won't pull any tricks on us. <laughs> then he sat down and he started practicing metta bhavana, <laughs> taking those robbers as his objects. He started thinking, may these men be well, happy, free from all harm and suffering. And he built up the force of metta, and he just melting with metta. He opened his eyes and then said to the robbers, okay, now you can kill me. And the robbers just couldn't move. They just had to lay down their weapons and told him, go on. Okay, so this is the introductory passage now of the Sutta. And now the Buddha is going to shift the, say, the direction of the teaching. 
He wants to show, you see, in, in this situation, Moli of Paguna apparently had been reproached by other bhikkhus several times for his intimate association with the bhikkhunis. And so because he did not heed their admonition, he showed that he had a somewhat stubborn and obstinate streak in his character. And so now the Buddha sort of looks back nostalgically to the early days of the Sangha when the monks were, when he had just acquired his first disciples. And he wants to show the difference between how the monks behaved in that early period and how they are behaving during this very degenerate age of maybe this is the middle period of the Buddha's instruction. At that time, it seems, it was not yet a customary practice for the monks to eat only in the forenoon. It seems at that time, in the very early stage, the monks would just go pindapata, maybe at any time of the day. And the Buddha, after some reflection, would have considered that it will be a, a proper practice for the Sangha to take meals only at a single session in the forenoon, not eating afternoon. <clears throat> and so the Buddha said that this is, in this period, this is my own practice is to eat at a single session and by doing so I am free from illness and affliction and I enjoy good health, strength and comfort. Then he requested the bhikkhus, come you also now should eat only at a single session. You too will know good health, strength and abiding and comfort. And then the Buddha makes the point he says, I had no need to keep on instructing those bhikkhus, to keep on reminding them, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that. I only had to arouse mindfulness in them, only to let them know my intention. Then the monks were just like obedient thoroughbred horses, as soon as the thoroughbred horse sees the driver mount the carriage and pick up the goad in his hand, then the thoroughbred horse immediately takes off and follows the instructions or the directions of the, of the charioteer. The charioteer doesn't have to restrain him this way urge him with cracking of the whip, but just with the most gentlest little nudges, the charioteer can send the thoroughbred horse in the right direction. And so the Buddha during this early period just had to give a reminder to the monks of what his intention was. 
and the monks would immediately obey. Even though the Buddha doesn't complete the, <coughs> the, well, the full implications of the passage, the implication seems to be that now it's no longer easy to do that. Now I have to say over and over again, behave in this way, don't behave in that way. And then if the monks are still obstinate in their misbehavior, then I have to lay down rules of training. Now in the next passage, paragraph 8, the Buddha shows the underlying purpose of his intention. I'm sorry, the underlying purpose or intention of his instruction. The purpose is not to satisfy the Buddha's own arbitrary desires, not to placate the Buddha because he is the supreme teacher. The purpose is for the welfare of the monks themselves, or we can extend that. The purpose of the Buddha's instruction is for the welfare of all of his disciples who are following his direction. The reason why the Buddha lays down his injunctions and gives directions and admonitions is to enable us to abandon what is unwholesome and to strengthen, to cultivate what is wholesome. These are the two directions of the mind. And left to itself without any guidance, sometimes the mind will follow an unwholesome direction sometimes it follows a wholesome direction. Most of the time we're so confused that we don't even know what is unwholesome, what is wholesome. But the Buddha's first, <coughs> through his enlightenment, the Buddha has perfect knowledge of what is unwholesome and what is wholesome. So when he gives any injunctions, lays down any rules of training, those injunctions and rules of training have the purpose of enabling us to control and abandon what is unwholesome and to develop, to follow what is wholesome. In the, present, in the present case, case of the Buddha's instruction to Moliya Paguna on how to behave when one is criticized and abused by others, what is to be abandoned as unwholesome is the angry thoughts, the urge to retaliate, and the expression of that anger through counter-abuse. 
the wholesome qualities that are to be, to be developed, that is, maintaining equanimity, restraining the mind so that it is not turned upside down by this straining situation. Arousing loving kindness and compassion towards the person who is abusing us. And the reason for abandoning the unwholesome and for devoting oneself to the wholesome, that is so that one will come to growth, increase and fulfillment in this Dhamma and discipline. That is, we can say that the ultimate purpose is so that one can achieve Nibbana which is the fulfillment of the Dhamma and discipline. Then the Buddha gives another simile to illustrate this, he gives a simile to illustrate this point. The Sutta has quite a number of good similes. Suppose there was a big solitary grove near a village or town and it was choked with castor oil weeds. Then some man would appear who desires the good welfare and protection of that grove of solitaries. And so he cuts down and throws out the crooked saplings that rob the trees of their sap. He would clean up the interior of the grove and tend the well-formed saplings so that later on the solitary growth would come to growth, increase, and fulfillment. In that way, the Buddha says, one should abandon what is unwholesome and devote yourself to what is wholesome. Now, in the next series of passages, the Buddha uses a certain story in order to illustrate a certain point. The point that the Buddha wants to make, as will emerge from this story, is that true patience, self-control, kindness and gentleness is not a matter about which, which one can just put on an exterior show. It's not a matter of outward display, but rather these are qualities that one truly has to cultivate within oneself. It's possible to maintain a front, a facade, of gentleness, kindness, goodness, because one has some ulterior motive, some self-seeking purpose. 
And if one displays those praiseworthy qualities without true inner development, other people might admire one and praise one and esteem one. But to do that in a hypocritical way is somewhat dangerous because there are situations which might just strain one's patience to the limits. And if one's patience gets strained to the limits, then the real inner qualities will start breaking out. And when they break out in anger, abuse of others, then one's reputation, one's favorable reputation, will be blighted. And so the Buddha gives us the story about a certain housewife, a well-to-do lady of good family, named Vedehika. And she was very much admired by her neighbors, townspeople, everybody thought of her as very kind, gentle, and peaceful. And this woman had a certain maid named Kali, and Kali thought that she would tr try to discover the real qualities of her mistress. And so one day, she, in order to test her mistress, she woke up late came out of bed late. And the mistress, Vedehika, asked her, why did you get up so late? And the servant girl said, for no reason at all, madam. And then the mistress became angry with her and she became displeased and abused her and scowled. Then the maid thought, ah, now my lady, though she does not show anger outwardly, actually there is that my lady does not show anger, even though there is real anger present in her. So then the servant girl thought that she would test her mistress even one step further. So then the next day she got up even later and when the mistress asked her, why did you get up late? She said, oh, for no reason at all. <laughs> and then this time the mistress spoke words of displeasure. She must have let out a torrent of, a torrent of abuse. Still, this was a very mischievous servant girl, and so she thought that she would test the, her mistress one more time. And so she got up the next day, even later in the day, and when the mistress Videhika asked her, why did you get up still later in the day? She said, oh, for no reason at all. 
And then this time the mistress became so angry and so furious that she took up a rolling pin and struck her on the head and cut her head. <laughs> and then the maid Kali, with the blood running down from her head, came out into the streets and called the neighbors and said, <laughs> See ladies, see the kind, my kind mistress's work. See my kind, my gentle mistress's work. See my peaceful mistress's work. How can she become angry and displeased with me for getting up late? How can she take a rolling pin, give me a blow on the head, and cut my head? So then, later on, amongst all of the neighbors, a bad report spread about concerning this mistress, Vedehika. Mistress Vedehika is rough. Mistress <laughs> Vedehika is violent. Mistress Vedehika is merciless. <clears throat> and so that is the illustration which the Buddha introduces. And now the Buddha takes this illustration and it applies it to the point that he's trying to make, that is the point concerning the discipline of the, or training of the bhikkhus. This is in, now we're in paragraph 10 of the sutta. Here some bhikkhu may be extremely kind, extremely gentle, extremely peaceful, so long as disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him. That is when other people admire and say, what a well-disciplined monk, what a pious and humble and gentle monk, then he's very, very kind, very gentle, seemingly very humble. But that's because disagreeable courses of speech do not touch him. But it is when disagreeable courses of speech touch him that we can understand whether that monk is really kind really gentle, really peaceful. And now a monk might be very gentle, peaceful, humble, kind, because he has some ulterior motive. His intention is to impress others so that he will attract offerings of the, of the requisites of robes, alms food, good lodgings, and 
medicinal requisites. But the Buddha makes the point that I do not call a bhikkhu easy to correct, that is easy to admonish. If he is easy to admonish and makes himself easy to admonish only for the sake of external gains, because he wants to gain material goods or to gain praise and admiration from others. The real reason that a bhikkhu can be called easy to admonish is because he is easy to admonish and makes himself easy to admonish because he honors, respects, and reveres the Dhamma. That is, because he wants to correct his faults and to develop good qualities. So when the Buddha or some of the other monks admonish a bhikkhu, and he accepts that admonition because he recognizes that his behavior, his attitudes have been wrong, improper, or going into a, leading into an improper direction. And so he abandons that wrong behavior and gives up his wrong attitudes because he sees the unsatisfactoriness of that. And he changes his way of behavior, changes his attitudes, because he sees the real need to develop wholesome and virtuous qualities. It's in such a case that the monk is truly easy to admonish. And therefore, the Buddha says to the monks, you should train yourselves in such a way as this. We shall be easy to admonish and make ourselves easy to admonish because we honor, respect, and revere the Dhamma. That, bhikkhus, is how you should train. Okay, the Buddha continues along with the same theme with several very, very striking and impressive similes, but I think it would be difficult to squeeze that in at this point, so I'll stop here and we'll continue with the sutta next time. If there are any questions based on the discussion so far, then please feel free to ask them. Yeah. I have a question of what you said earlier, and that is, to what extent might one go to have one desist from killing either oneself or someone else, or not so much killing, but if one were to harm another one, would one to dissuade the person from killing what extent would I would say, this is my personal opinion, that 
if the person seems to be really set on violence and he's out to kill, say, a stranger or a bypasser, that one should even use force to try to, to stop him. I would say definitely one should not kill him in return. Um, but one should be prepared, if one can, and one feels that one can do so safely without endangering one's own life, then one should try to use force, perhaps to, maybe even to knock him unconscious if one can, <laughs> since one will not only save the life of the person, of the innocent bystander or by bypasser, but it will also save that person from the danger of committing a terrible crime of killing. Of course, when the situation becomes one of where there's a choice between either your life or his, then it becomes a very, very difficult decision which one has to make, I would say, based on one's intention. I say in, in a situation like that, there are two possibilities. One is that one, okay, when we're supposing an extreme situation where there's only these two choices, either you kill him or you let him kill you. I would say here one has to decide what one's ultimate objective is. If one wishes really to follow the straightest and most direct way to Nibbana, then one lets him kill you. One submits and just accepts it as one's fate. Since in that way one preserves one's sila, one doesn't take a human life, and so one will die by submitting to death in an extreme situation like that, where one is restraining from the alternative of taking life, one is practiced to an extraordinarily high degree the paramis of sila, maintaining the vow not to take life, the quality of patience, kanti, the quality, I would say, metta, loving-kindness, quality of upeka, equanimity. So one is giving up one's human life, but one is bound to take a very, very favorable rebirth in which one will continue one's quest. And one is doing this because one has submitted to the Buddha's training, so one has very powerful going for refuge to the Triple Gem. So it's almost Without, indubitable that one is going to be reborn into conditions and the circumstances either in the human world or in a celestial world where one will come into contact with the Buddha Dhamma and be able to continue one's quest for enlightenment with such powerful supporting conditions from having fulfilled these very very high virtues <clears throat> <laughs> I think after this little speech of praise for that course, nobody will be inclined to follow the other course anymore. But speaking from a practical standpoint, you're, say, a man with a wife to support, young children, 
five or six young children who depend on oneself for a living, maybe also one's parents who are concerned, still alive, concerned about you. And one really has no hatred for that person, but one sees that maybe he's going, he'll take your life, or maybe even he's a madman about to... I didn't consider this alternative. That introduces, let's not take the alternative where he's about to fire into a crowd of people in a shopping mall. We'll leave that aside. <laughs> okay, it's either your life or his. And, okay, you, you know him, he's just an insane man who has, nobody likes him, he's always been regarded as the lunatic of the neighborhood, but previously he seemed a harmless lunatic. Now he's coming at you with a knife or a gun, just gone out of his mind. Okay, you can sit, maybe you don't have much time to consider, but okay, you, the only alternative is to kill him and you choose that action. Because of taking that action, one has committed definitely the akusala karma of taking a human life, and that's normally a heavy karma. But I would say that under these circumstances, the intention is not one of malice, cruelty, or some kind of ambition for oneself, but one wishes to fulfill one's responsibilities to one's family, and just to prevent this lunatic from taking one's life. And so one kills him, I would say that there's unwholesome karma, but that karma is modified by many extenuating circumstances, so it will not be extremely heavy the way it would be if somebody out of hatred, malice, in the spirit of retaliation, takes a human life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.